This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. It's International Anti-Corruption Day today. And for our health show today, we're going to be looking at why healthcare, both as a profession and as a system, falls prey to corruption when its very core values are actually to protect and provide care to people. Joining me for the discussion today, Dr. Korswiking, Independent Health Policy Specialist, and Alan Kirupakaran, Exco Member of Transparency International Malaysia, will be exploring what healthcare corruption and abuse looks like um, within the system, what might be some examples in Malaysia, uh, some recent examples, and what will it take to cleanse the system, so to speak? And um, SK, uh, apart from specialising in health systems, has also previously covered the Europe, Middle East and African region as a compliance officer for a multinational pharmaceutical company. So he'll be sharing insights from those perspectives as well. SK and Ellen, how are the both of you today? Good, thanks. Shall we? All right. Well, today I saw Harry. Okay. And uh, before I forget, um, SK wears many hats. He's also co founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition. And so, um, yeah, lots of different uh, insights, I think, to bring to the discussion in terms uh, of the systems perspective, the compliance and governance perspective, but also um, looking at uh, perhaps. Uh, a bit more of a community in grassroots level from the perspective of healthcare providers as well. Share your thoughts with us. Do you think that corruption is a serious issue in our healthcare sector? And that's probably something I'm going to kick off the discussion with our guests as well. But in the meantime, this is the number to call 0377332900. You can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. And so my first question actually is just that. Does corruption actually exist in health systems generally as well as in Malaysia, because we do tend to think of the health system of all sectors, that this is the one industry and profession and sector that should be impervious to corruption. Um, SK, would you like to start first? Of course, Sherry. Thank you. Unfortunately, corruption does exist in healthcare, not just in Malaysia, but perhaps in other countries as well. This has two structural reasons. Uh, the first structural reason is that public procurement in healthcare is only a small part of public procurement writ large. And if there are challenges with public procurement, for example, transparency, direct negotiations, um, and just the way the processes are being met or not met, then healthcare would also have the same challenges as any other sector. It is actually uh, difficult for us to say that just because healthcare should be noble and we should be ethical and we should be uh, well, saving patients' lives, uh, it, that does not uh, by itself constitute a good reason for the absence of corruption. So these are, that's the first structural reason for why there will be corruption in healthcare. Um, and simply because uh, government procurement in healthcare is very, very valuable, not just in Malaysia, but in other countries as well. Secondly, uh, and very briefly, shall we, is that in healthcare, there's a very unusual principal-agent problem. That's just a fancy economics way of saying the following. The patient uses healthcare, the decision-maker for what uh, um, drugs or vaccines or surgeries are needed by the patient is not the patient. In other words, the doctor decides, 
and the payer is somebody else. So there are three entities, meaning the doctor decides what treatment, the patient uses the treatment, and insurance or government pay for that treatment. This is very different compared to, well, imagine a coffee or a car or a condominium or um, buying movie tickets, for example. The same person decides which coffee, the same person pays for the coffee, and the same person consumes that coffee. Given the principal agent problem where the doctor decides, the patient uses, and the government pays, there is uh, some opportunity structurally for some, um, well, shall we say, corruption to be taking place. Shawik, over to you. Alan, um, would you like to shed any uh, any more light uh, on this question? Yes, um, shall we? Um, I agree, con concur with what uh, SK talked about. Uh, to answer the question uh, that you posed, yes, corruption occurs everywhere. And, you know, the, the basic premise of uh, corruption, bribery, is that uh, it will occur wherever there is an opportunity. And the healthcare sector is no different from any other sector, be it education, supply chain, housing, etc. So human nature for greed and abuse of position, unfortunately, is there, right? And it doesn't discriminate between uh, sectors or professions. Um, so what is important and what you know, TI Malaysia uh, firmly believes in is that uh, given that, I mean, we believe that healthcare is a basic right. Right, it's, it's, it's a right which should be enjoyed by every uh, citizen. And it's in line with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which seeks to provide affordable, accessible, and quality healthcare for everyone. So the government's role uh, is actually very clear. And I think they have been doing it uh, you know, to a large degree, which is basically to provide health access to all citizens. All right. So now the issue would be by extension, because the government's role is very wide and as articulated by SK, uh, there, there are so many levels and so many players involved. The budget allocation for the sector, uh, it will also be big. And this essentially reflects the government's commitment and priorities uh, to this basic right. So whenever there is a larger budget that is allocated for a particular ministry, obviously the, the risks of corruption, bribery, abuse of position, etc. will be greater, right? So that just goes, goes to follow. So Yes, corruption exists, and perhaps because we're talking about healthcare, which, as I said, is a basic right, it's it's crucial that those risks be addressed uh, very, very clearly. So for us, what's important are, are, are two elements. One is that the processes should be in place to, to not only detect and address corruption, but to prevent it as well. So, so in TI, we take a very strong view in terms of when it's a transgression occurs, uh, obviously there are measure steps that are laws in place to address them. But I we, we believe that a lot more effort needs to be put in on the prevention side of it, right? So addressing the risk before it occurs. Secondly, law, uh, processes and procedures and KPIs, et cetera, are only as good as the people who implement them. So the people responsible for implementing these processes are equally crucial. So here's where we talk about human governance. And uh, that's, that's an area which uh, we believe uh, has not been given sufficient uh, focus, yeah, sufficient attention, because when we address, when we have people who have got good governance practices in place, good ethical practices in place, I think half of your 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 challenges in terms of corruption and bribery are addressed because they, they don't tend to look for those uh, ways of circumventing the system. Yeah, so so for us that that's those are those important criteria that we need to take into play. All right, we'll get into that later because I want to find out more about, you know, what do you mean then by human governance? Um, of course, we understand the principle of it, but what 
uh, will it look like in implementation. But coming back to corruption in healthcare, in in a sense and in a context that our listeners can relate to, what exactly does it mean? What kinds of practices are we talking about? Uh, what kinds of processes are being abused? SK, perhaps you'd like to um, sort of set that stage. Thanks, shall we? We'll begin with a number. The number is 13 billion ringgit. 13 billion ringgit is what the Malaysian government spends, approximately that number. 13 billion ringgit is what the Malaysian government spends for procuring healthcare goods and services. So the Ministry of Health budget is approximately 32 billion a year, ringgit a year. 58% of that is salaries and the remaining 42% that will be paid to procure goods and services. Let me give three examples of goods and services that we can procure. Firstly, Medicines, vaccines, technologies, uh, devices, stands, uh, ambulances, ventilators, um, personal protective equipment and face masks. That's the goods side. The second thing that we can procure is healthcare support services. Example, facilities maintenance for a hospital, meaning uh, engineering, lighting, plumbing, electrical supply for a hospital, including construction of a hospital. Thirdly, is healthcare services directly. So the government of Malaysia or any other government really will go to the private sector and say, we want to buy vaccinations, surgeries, consultations and treatments from healthcare professionals. These are three broad categories and they're part of my research in the National University of Singapore as well. So first group is goods that we buy stuff. Secondly, we buy services that support the running of healthcare like facilities maintenance and electrical engineering and plumbing. Thirdly, we purchase healthcare services. Shall we, in each of these three components, there are government procurement policies and uh, processes that needs to be followed. Um, now, whether or not it's followed, we have the Auditor General for that. Secondly, we've got the Chief or rather Integrity Officer, which is embedded in every government ministry in Malaysia. Thirdly, there are financial processes uh, that are mostly Ministry of Finance and, and Treasury related uh, financial processes that seek to reduce the amount of corruption. So these are the ways, I guess, I shall we, and uh, um, to use uh, Alan's word earlier, the opportunities uh, where corruption can take place. Perhaps, Sharika, before I end and pass the floor again to you, is to distinguish corruption from wastage, fraud and abuse. Wastage, fraud and abuse also exists in healthcare. It's not a subject of our conversation today. And that we can have a separate show about wastage in healthcare, fraud and abuse in healthcare. And these are four separate co components. And today we're talking only about corruption. And I've given the $13 billion ringgit figure of how much the Malaysian government procures goods, healthcare services or support services and healthcare services on an annual basis. Over to you, Shawit. All right. I think we'll go for a break now. Um, let that figure, um, that huge 13 billion ringgit figure um, sort of percolate in our listeners' minds for a while. Because when we come back, then we'll look at, um, you know, I, I'll be asking you to highlight some issues where um, corruption has either been identified or where there are risks or concerns uh, within these kinds of procurement processes. What really, um, and I feel like I haven't gotten yet the answer to what does it really look like in, uh, in the system and the services uh, in a way that people can relate to and identify, um, okay, this is where um, there has been, I mean, at the end of the day, corruption is... Um, funds not being used um, properly and, um, you know, 
transparently. So um, we'll continue this conversation, um, try and find um, issues uh, that have been reported and what has been done to address it. And coming back to Alan's points um, later on in the show as well about detecting, preventing and, and, and addressing um, these instances of corruption. It's International Anti-Corruption Day today. I'm speaking to Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition and Alan Kirupakaran, ex-co-member of Transparency International Malaysia. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. And my guests are to commemorate International Anti-Corruption Day today, Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, and Alan Kirupakaran, ex-co member from in, uh, Transparency International Malaysia. We're discussing how corruption does exist in the health system. Um, structurally, there are issues. Uh, and of course, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about systems involving people. And um, I want to pick up on a phrase that Alan mentioned earlier, the human nature for greed and, uh, and abuse. So um, we'll be uh, continuing this discussion. Do um, share your thoughts with us. Do you think that corruption is a serious issue in our healthcare sector? You can call us at 0377332900 or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Um, Alan, earlier um, SK talked about uh, the amount and the kinds of um, areas involved when it comes to procurement um, by the government of Malaysia for the healthcare sector. Um, I'd like to turn to you now and um, continue to get your thoughts, right? Um, what do you see as um, corruption in healthcare? How, how does it manifest in healthcare? Okay, yeah. Um I will answer that question, Shoyik, but be before I do that, let I me mean, just, just highlight, I think one of the um, uh, maybe challenges or uh, within the healthcare sector, when we talk about the perception of corruption in the healthcare sector, especially with the rakyat, yeah, with, with, the, with the citizen, um, all those examples that uh, SK mentioned just now were, were, were real, or uh, things that actually happened, but they may not necessarily be things which are, uh, knowledgeable or you know exposed to the rakyat. So the rakyat may not really know in terms of uh, procurement practices, the medicines, the medical equipment, infrastructure, how hospitals are built, are built, etc. So that to a certain degree uh, creates this underestimation of the issue uh, in the industry amongst the people. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's an important point to highlight because to a certain degree we need to address that as well. Um, when we go to a hospital, a government hospital, we pay subsidized prices for our medication. Right? We're happy. We see the hospitals are generally busy. Of course, we, we hope that they can be expanded so that the wait time is less. But generally, the hospitals are not underutilized. So they, they're not white elephants. So we know that a hospital was built and it's being utilized using our taxpayers' money. So this gives give us this feel-good factor, right? So we don't... And I think most importantly, and this is something that happens in some other uh, countries, we don't need to bribe to access healthcare. You know, I mean, that's, a, that's an important point. If you look at some other countries, that, that's, that's a requirement. So, so the perception is that if we don't see or experience it, we tend to underestimate it, right? But having said that, 
the, the, the issues are real. And given the, the, the numbers that SK talked about just now, uh, they, they, they are there. So examples of how corruption can happen in healthcare are, are typically theft or diversion of supplies, right? So whenever uh, the government orders certain medication, uh, maybe they, they order a certain quantity, but the quantity that arrives could be diverted or percentage of it could be diverted. So that's corruption. Counterfeit medicines, right? You ask for something, but you get something else in return. Uh, fraudulent claims or invoices. And this is uh, something that's, that, that is seen not only in the healthcare sector, but everywhere else as well. But as I said earlier, because of the quantum involved here, maybe the, 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 the risk are higher. And of course, um, uh, the service delivery, okay, uh, in terms of uh, being able to uh, see that the equipment that has been bought has been maintained. So the facilities maintenance part of it, which I think is one of the problems that we see and has been highlighted in the Auditor General's report of equipment being 20 years old, 15 years old, constantly breaking down, etc. Right. So was uh, allocations of was funds allocated for maintenance of this equipment or replacement of them? And was this done or not? So these are some typical examples of how corruption can occur in the healthcare uh, sector. And they occur in the background so that the, the public don't actually see it uh, as much as perhaps they should. Yeah. Eski, was there anything you wanted to add? Yes. I did, Chawika. Um, and I think Ellen gave uh, some great examples as well. Uh, Ellen, I'm going to try to build on them. Some of those examples are Ellen, their corruption, because stolen or diverted products can be considered a form of corruption. They're also theft, uh, and that, that could be a separate category of a crime as well. Uh, I love uh, Ellen's examples. Uh, shall we to directly um, answer your question, which is, how can we visualize this? Let me offer two. The first example uh, to directly visualize how corruption happens in healthcare is at the macro level. The second example is at the micro level. At the macro level, at the big picture, Malaysia spends about 500 million ringgit a year on direct purchases of medicines at the hospital, uh, the era and the hospital uh, state uh, hospital level, basically. Now, um, there is an opportunity. I'm not saying it exists, right? I'm saying that there's an opportunity uh, because uh, these things uh, needs to be investigated by the police, by the MACC, and also by uh, the, the Auditor General. So because there's so much um, procurement that's happening at 500 million ringgit a year, plus minus, of medicines purchased at the hospital level, not the central level, and there are 145 hospitals in Malaysia, so there is an opportunity. I'm not suggesting that this is happening. I'm suggesting that there's an opportunity that is happening for a person to say, I will purchase drug A instead of drug B because I'm receiving a kickback for purchasing drug A and not drug B, for example. That's one big and uh, very big picture example of how corruption can happen in healthcare. Now, this is uh, across the world. So it's not really just a Malaysia challenge. It's really a worldwide challenge. Secondly, is from my experience, uh, this is on the individual healthcare professional level. Now, uh, I covered the Middle East before for compliance. In other words, I was an anti-corruption officer for a pharmaceutical company in the Middle East and Africa region, uh, and, and including Eastern Europe for six years. Now, I heard a story. The story is that um, there was a healthcare professional, a doctor, in one of the countries in the Middle East, and this healthcare professional did not accept any money from any pharmaceutical company whatsoever in exchange for prescribing the pharmaceutical company's product. Instead, the pharmaceutical uh, company's rep, uh, this, was, this happened many, many years ago. Right now, it's all cleaned up. We're talking about 15 or 20 years ago. Right now, the standards are much higher because we can detect these things, which is good because standards continue to evolve. 
But 15, 20 years ago, the pharmaceutical rep would uh, fetch the doctor's children to school. Now, the story here is that, uh, uh, is that corruption? Yes, this happened 20 years ago. Right now, we're very good at detecting and preventing all these things. Then therefore indicating to us that corruption isn't only paying people money. It's also doing somebody a favor. Like, I give your son an internship in my uh, bank, for example, or my company, and that's a form of corruption too. Not necessarily only money exchanging hands in an envelope under the table. Over to you, Sharik. So, I think, um, Alan, what do you think? Um, we 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 are talking at one level of um, huge funds, um, procurement decisions made at a federal uh, level, and then we're also talking about at the at the end of the day, it's also individuals um, making deals with each other, right? Um, are there also, I, I guess. You know, you're going to see, and and we know this, we know this for a fact, corruption is normalized for a lot of us um, at the daily level as well, to the point that we think because somebody else is doing it, why not me? You know, um, everybody else is getting away with it. Um, And that suggests that it's really rotten at the core, isn't it? Yeah, and um, Shari, I will... I think you, nail, you, you you hit the nail on the head in terms of uh, what you described it earlier, which is everyone is getting away with it. Okay, So therein lies the problem. Okay, If you wanted to address the issue holistically you know, and, and uh, uh, you know, make sure that what has happened... So let's just take the Auditor General's report for as an example. Okay? Um, annually, it comes up. Annually, the issues are highlighted. So the press uh, uh, picks and chooses which in uh, reports it wishes to highlight, etc. But you note that by and large, um, the uh, nature of of the uh, audit issues and the problems that are highlighted tend to repeat themselves. They just they just tend to perhaps move from one ministry or one agency to the other, right? Which begs the question: Why is that continuously happening? Okay, and uh, it is not from lack of trying. Okay, I mean when I say lack of trying, lack of trying by the uh, on the part of the Auditor General's office. You know they do uh, very thorough audits uh, of uh, ministries and agencies. They come out with uh, recommendations, compliance audits, uh, uh, etc. On what steps need to be taken. By extension, even MACC does that. Whenever a case uh, comes before them and there is elements of uh, uh, corruption fraud. Uh, and it leads to convictions, um, they actually come up with uh, post-case uh, analysis and uh, recommendations for ministries and agencies. So all this information is a bit actually out there. Uh, steps to be taken to address it so that it doesn't recur again. And this is where I, I emphasize the point about preventive uh, uh, actions to be taken. So I think the question that begs to be asked is, uh, are they done? Uh, are they looked into seriously and are they implemented? Because if they are, I would tend to think that the incidences would reduce over time, right? The incidences in the auditor's report would reduce over time. Bear in mind that the audit report is taking a sample of all the projects that we do. It doesn't cover everything purely because of the scale of projects that we have. So, So that should, to me, be a warning sign, right? A red flag that comes up that says that uh, we really aren't doing enough to address those issues and to make sure that they don't recur again. Um, I'll, I'll, if I can, I'll take the example of what uh, the immediate past uh, health minister, 
uh, talked about when he, um, the audit report came out, uh, he identified that there were 13 sick healthcare projects involving clinics, hospitals, and living quarters, right, involving the ministry. And they, they set up a task force to monitor these, uh, these healthcare projects. Great, wonderful, good step. The question would be, what's the progress of it? Were those uh, sick projects rehabilitated over time? Hopefully they were. And of course, by extension, at what cost? So how much of additional funds and time were needed to rehabilitate them? Because that goes directly to uh, how the uh, public funds are utilized, right? So, so for me, these are areas which need to be looked at uh, seriously. Uh, like I said, there is no lack of uh, advice, recommendations out there steps to be taken to, to, to mitigate those risks and make sure they don't recur again, we need to, 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 to see and monitor and make sure that uh, those implementations are undertaken and uh, it reduces those, those, those leakages as they happen. So I think that's very crucial. So what can we do to ensure there's follow through? Like you said, a task force could be set up. We don't know what's happening there. Um, who's auditing the Auditor General's report, so to speak? Um, I'd like to throw the question to um, either of you, uh, whichever wants to pick it up, right? So um, what, what do we do now uh, that can be better than what's already in place? We have uh, auditor, we have um, the integrity officers uh, in gov uh, government uh, ministries, if I'm not mistaken. We have the financial processes uh, from the MOF, like you said, SK. Um, where are the gaps and how do we plug them? Alan, we should go first. Yes, if I could, uh, just I, for me, um, shortly, uh, shortly, the, the 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 crux of the matter is in transparency, data transparency, all right, information availability to the general public, all right. Um, the government has been positive. The new government has been positive thus far about transparency, about what steps the, the, we've you've had the prime minister directive on tenders, all right. We've had reviews of previous decisions that have been made, all right. Which are good. What we need to do is that uh, we need to uh, report on those actions that are, are, are being taken. The, the general public, uh, NGOs, etc., we need to know that um, they are being acted upon. So for me, what is uh, really crucial is that there should be transparency in the releasing of information related to, well, obviously, the, the obvious one, which uh, most people will be interested in is in tenders, public projects. But the example that we spoke about uh, before about sick projects, how do we rehabilitate them? So transparency in those those uh, uh, committees that have been formed. Okay, how uh, how successful? We're not. I I think we have to be fair. Uh, we can't expect everything to be a hundred percent successful. All right, there will be challenges as they, as we go along. Um, but I think what's most important is that those challenges need to be acknowledged. And we need to then determine what actions need to be taken. And we need to be transparent in how we report them. So we can't be uh, picking and choosing, we'll report this, but we hide. we're not going to uh, you know, address this other area. And I think that's been one of the uh, perennial problems within the public sector over the last couple of years. Sometimes we only hear of uh, issues when uh, the parliamentary select committee takes it up, for example. Right? And that shouldn't be the case. The parliamentary select committee is there and it's a very good mechanism, but we it should not come to the level where the PSE decides to, 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 to look into a particular area when the information comes out. So by right, so long as it does not 
uh, impact the, nas the national security, right? And uh, it, is, it is information that's related to a particular uh, project. That information should be out there. So the main trust should be transparency in data. Ensure that the uh, data is released, information related to that, make it available, preferably in an open data format. It's up to date. The public is aware of it. The public knows where to access this information so that then that we will we will be able to make our own uh, uh, decisions and uh, it will come up come up with ideas of whether something is moving in the right direction or not. It will be up to the government to justify its actions, obviously. Mm -hmm. So for me, what is also crucial apart from data transparency is also the supporting information that goes towards it. So if I, if I can very quickly give a, a, a typical example. For large projects, so hospitals can come under this category, especially if you're talking about building a thousand bit hospital, all right? Uh, cost can be uh, uh, very, very, very high. Um, so large projects which have an impact on, at the national level, so, and I believe hospitals uh, meet this criteria, there should be transparency in terms of the feasibility studies, the cost-benefit analysis related to, to that. Bear in mind, the decision to go ahead to buy something, to procure something, the 13 billion that uh, SK talked about, is based on the decision that we need to buy this. So once you make that decision, you just follow the processes, all right, a competitive being, et cetera. But was that decision the right decision? So I'm my, my uh, train of thought is that we need to go back to that uh, needs analysis, right? And I'm, I'm not talking about every uh, procurement that is happening. I'm talking about large scale ones, right? So we need to look at the cost benefits. So what are the projections that have been made? If if I give a typical example, uh, if we look at the MRT and LRT, uh, just moving away from healthcare for a second, um, when those decisions were made, they were made on based on assumptions of what ridership levels are going to be, what the fare structure is going to be. So what assumptions were made then and the reality today, are there, are there variances? Or are there big enough variances? Okay. So these are cr crucial questions that need to be asked. Uh, and what are the level of government guarantees? Does the government provide guarantees to the contractor or vendor who's going to be taking part? Uh, subsidies that are going to be committed? So all this information needs to be out there in the public domain. And I think that's also equally crucial when we make uh, uh, decisions with regards to uh, fighting corruption and reducing those leakages. Mm, ASCII. Yes. Thanks, uh, Shawik. Um, well, Ellen's... Uh, Ellen had a very rich commentary, which can be summarized, if I may, Ellen, in one word, transparency. True to form, it's, uh, he is, after all, the exco member for Transparency International. Let me add two more thoughts. One, culture. Two, systems. Culture is very easy to, to talk about, which is tone from the top, meaning prime minister all the way down to hospital directors, district health officers at the senior level, tone from the middle, tone from the bottom. Nobody does corruption, right? Um, so that's uh, all about literacy, teaching people about the, the evils of corruption and um, inculcating an anti-corruption behavior and set of values from very early on. So there's a whole speech about education, whole speech about training and changing mindsets and talking about a culture of compliance with strong tone from the top. That's a very easy speech to make, shall we? Uh, for us to say corruption is bad and let's teach everybody that corruption is bad. We need to do that. We also need to build a system to fight corruption. These are three thoughts to build a system to fight corruption. Now, I've built this system and implemented this system um, across um, many countries in Eastern Europe, Middle East, and Africa. 
including some of the more um, countries that are listed high, lowly rather, in the trans, uh, Corruption Perceptions Index, like, uh, well, let's not name them, Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa are the countries that I covered. These are the three things that I did. Firstly, three lines of defense, meaning the first line of defense would be the manager who makes a decision. The second line of defense would be uh, compliance functions within the organization. The third line of defense is internal audit. All three functions needs to be given the tools, the resources, and the political support to do their work well in a non-corrupt way. That's the three lines of defense. Um, auditors, accountants, financial uh, CFOs who are listening into the call today, you'll be very familiar with the three lines of defense. Please go talk to your teams and your uh, companies and your friends and family about the three lines of defense. The second thing is to build a process that removes human beings as much as possible from the process. In other words, it's a bit automatic, meaning you want to procure whatever it is that you need to procure. There's a bit of a process that just needs to be followed. The more automated the processes and the fewer human touch points are in the process, the better it would be. The human being could be um, putting in information and making some final judgments at the end. This is always necessary and important, but there are many parts of the uh, procurement process that can be automated. So create a financial process and system that automates as much as possible and makes everything as electronic as possible so that you'll be able to follow the money very, very easily. So you build a process that uh, uh, makes it very difficult for people to be uh, corrupt or to accept or to offer a bribe. Thirdly, something called monitoring, not auditing. The difference between, both are important, by the way, we need both monitoring and auditing. What's the difference between monitoring and auditing? Auditing comes in uh, a team of five people looking at all accounts for the last three years. They come in for one month, three, every three years, for example. So think of an audit, five people coming in for one month, examining your books for the last three years. Monitoring is done every week, month or quarter or every year. So it's more frequent than an audit. Secondly, the sample sizes are smaller. Thirdly, it can be performed automated rather than having a human being over there. So there are systems right now that can flag suspicious transactions. So when you have monitoring, you're just increasing the chances of you detecting corruption. This disincentivizes people from uh, offering or taking a bribe. Now, these are my two additional thoughts. Uh, Ellen mentioned transparency. I'm all in favor of it. Number two, let's educate people and create a culture. But that's not enough. We have to build a system that encourages compliance and discourages corruption. Over to you, Sharik. All right. We'll continue this uh, again after another quick break. It's uh, International Anti-Corruption Day today. I'm speaking to Dr. Koswi King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, and Alan Kirupakaran, ex-co member of Transparency International Malaysia. Um, we do want to hear from you. Do you think that corruption is a serious issue in our healthcare sector? Um, corruption is, I think, something close. Um, I, I say close to Malaysians' hearts is simply because we recognise um, it as being a pervasive practice in um, many areas of our daily lives. Um, what are your thoughts about it when it comes to healthcare or perhaps some thoughts uh, when it comes to reforms that are needed uh, based on the discussion we've been having? Call us 0377332900 or WhatsApp 0187898899. We'll be right back. BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. It's International Anti-Corruption Day today. We are commemorating that with a discussion about corruption in the healthcare se- uh, sector um, as a profession and within the system as well, which, um, you know, is... Um, has many structures that um, are at risk, are vulnerable to corrupt uh, corruption and uh, you know related practices. I'm speaking to Dr. Koswiking, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition, and Alan Kirupakaran, exco member of Transparency International Malaysia. Alan, before the break, SK talked about he added on culture and system um, to uh, that question about what do we need to do, right? And and that's basically the, the biggest question uh, in the room, uh, in this space that we are discussing. Um, you earlier also said that um, processes need to be in place to detect, prevent and address. Um, is uh, Was what SK brought up, what you are also thinking of in terms of the prevention aspect particularly? Uh, yes, most definitely. I think that the, the three lines of defense that SK spoke about are, are, are very relevant. I would just add that under compliance, um, uh, as SK has also mentioned earlier, we have those integrity units yeah, within ministries and agencies. And I think that's a uh, important point to take note of. These uh, uh, units um, were formed, uh, I, well, almost 10 years ago, right, after 2013. Um and I was involved in, in, in them you know, to, to, to a certain degree. So we have integrity units in all ministries, uh, agencies, government, and based on the level of uh, uh, risk that is associated, that is determined by MECC, uh, they are staffed uh, uh, appropriately. Okay. Um, now these integrity units play, well, their, their main role essentially is prevention. All right. Their main role is prevention. So we're very clear, MECC comes in, of course, MECC has a prevent prevention unit as well. But MECC essentially comes in when those red flags have been highlighted, something happens, and then they investigate because they've got the power of the act behind them. Okay. Uh, what we have always, uh, TI has always been asking for is that uh, there should be closer, perhaps, uh, cooperation, understanding in the way the integrity unit works with other supporting uh, structures, such as the audit, audit department, internal audit even the Auditor General's office, right? Um, And those integrity units need to be able to uh, identify where potential red flags are going to happen, right? So so it's always easier to do preventive uh, uh, work uh, before something happens than after it's occurred. So for me, uh, as I've reiterated before, uh, preventive uh, measures are very important, address the risks which contribute to the corruption. And in this day and age where we have uh, uh, access to data analytics, trends, uh, information, etc., use this. Use this information for, for this purpose. Right? Mm-hmm. So just just very quickly good. though, um, Alan, what are the barriers right now preventing the integrity units from being able to do what they're supposed to do? Um, I... I don't know whether um, I, I don't know whether their uh, scope of work has changed from when it was set up earlier, but I I would measure the effectiveness of integrity units in the sense that um, they would have been able to raise red flags before many of the issues that have been highlighted over the last couple of years came up. Okay, ideally, you see some of those examples where uh, tenders were awarded uh, to um, 
contractors who were not experienced, who were unable to uh, complete a job. So if we take uh, a, a specific example, and this is reported in the AG's report, the hospital in Borough, right, which was uh, um, cons began construction in 2012 with a completion date of 2015. All right. It was, a, it was a small hospital, a district hospital, 40 bit. Right. Uh, it was officially launched in August this year, 10 years later. Okay. Uh, the auditor's report talked about uh, uh, issues with the contractor. So that goes again, goes back to the to the question of uh, what was the basis of, of awarding the contract to the contractor if there were failures related to the contractor. So this is where I talked about lessons being learned, you know, and making sure that those uh, steps that are in place, those criteria that are in place, are followed. Because when we want to talk about preventive, uh, we can't run away from the fact that things will happen and we need to talk about the carrot and the stick. So here, what actions are taken when something is reported? I, I also believe that this is another area which we need to, to, to look at a bit closer because um, I, I would hate to think that you know things keep recurring because someone thinks that no action is going to be taken against them, right? So if that were the case, then we really are back to square one. Um, so, you know, in, in the government uh, sector, there are very clear uh, steps that need to be taken when transgressions are detected. And if there is sufficient evidence, um, then actions that can be taken, including warning letters, disciplinary action, even imposing financial penalties or surcharges against the individual, those are available out there. Mm -hmm. And if the uh, case has got criminal elements to it, then escalating to the relevant authorities. Mm -hmm. My question would be, how much of this is done in a timely manner? Okay, If you take a long time to, to, to address uh, these issues, by the time that you resolve it, the, the damage would have already been done. Exactly. So yeah. again, the question would be uh, taking those proactive measures, preventive firstly, but when transgressions occur, making sure that you follow the letters of the processes that are in place mm. and taking action where it needs to be taken. Eski? Thanks. I want to um, build on what Alan has mentioned about the integrity unit, but perhaps I don't share Alan's optimism about the integrity unit. Firstly, is to say integrity units are very important for obvious reasons, uh, and it's great that we've got integrity units true, uh, and for any number of really good reasons, right? Um, Alan, in my experience, the creation of an integrity unit or uh, even a compliance unit in a particular organization or department that allows that organization to uh, potentially do two things. One, just say that the job is done, we've won the war on corruption, we've got an integrity unit, done. That's it, we can all go home right now. And that's a very, um, very unfortunate, unintended consequence. The second unintended consequence of creating an integrity unit is that, let's imagine the Ministry of Health, 270,000 people in the Ministry of Health. I don't know how many people there are in the integrity unit in the Ministry of Health of Malaysia, but I can't expect that to be 100,000 people, for example. It's probably likely to be um, less than 100 or thereabouts, right? So to get 100 people, example, again, I don't know how many people there are in the integrity unit in the Ministry of Health, but one can assume that number will be relatively low. It is not fair to expect 100 people with no tools, no um, political capital, no systems and analytics to police almost or to ensure or prevent uh, corruption does not happen uh, in their colleagues of 270,000 people. So it's not really a magic solution, nor do I believe that a royal commission of inquiry is also a magic solution. We can thirdly institute a death penalty for corruption, also not a magic solution. 
there are no magic solutions to corruption because Ellen rightly pointed out, this is a human nature problem. It's a human behavior problem. We can teach them all we want. We got to build a system to reduce corruption. And one way we can um, reduce corruption through building a system is to make it more likely that you are caught or detected if you're corrupt. Now, the knowledge that you might be caught, more likely to be caught than not to be caught, will deter people from corruption. Crime, which is a, a, the corruption, which is a form of crime, really. When you think about crime, you can institute the death penalty for anything and it wouldn't deter anyone if they're not caught. So the, the system of um, preventing, then detecting, then responding to it is basically a system of um, making the odds more likely that you can catch the person and that would be an important deterrence. To illustrate, we can, uh, to illustrate one more time, if we can put the death penalty for even corruption of five ringgit, for example, it will not deter anyone if, the, if that penalty is not applied. It's better that we have a, a swift, swifter justice than we have today, uh, because justice delays, justice denied in, what, uh, uh, in a way of um, saying what uh, Ellen has said earlier. The point being that uh, building a system to make it more likely that we can detect would then deter the people rather than big and, uh, um, shall we say, highly visible actions like death penalties or royal commissions of inquiries or even creations of um, uh, symbolic compliance units or integrity units. This is not a Malaysia problem, really. This is a worldwide problem. Creating um, this kind of uh, highly visible tools could often be, let's call it a corruption theatre. It's a theatre to um, make ourselves feel that we're acting against corruption, but we're not really acting against corruption. Thanks, uh, Sherry. Over to you. I just want to share a message from a listener who said corruption is the destruction of integrity of um, human beings. Uh, and I think that is, um, well, quite quite a dramatic um, expression, but it, it does um, speak to what both of you have been talking about, right? That um, if we leave it up to human nature alone, that's where the risks uh, and the pit, uh, the pitfalls will be. And we're putting in place systems from uh, detecting, preventing to catching, like you said, SK, and also um, punishing, as you've said, Alan, because action needs to be taken in order. It's like teaching children, right? Uh, if you tell them not to do something, you, they have to understand that there are consequences to the act. May I get each of you to share a final takeaway message um, for the issue that we've been talking about today, Alan? Um, thanks, uh, Shoik. Um, I think in terms of uh, systems, processes, in terms of the infrastructure that, that we have in place, um, I believe that by and large, they are sufficient. I think the, 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 we go, we look back at the audit report, we look back at the recommendations. I think that, I think what is crucial is uh, actionable uh, steps that are taken and reporting on them. As I talked about earlier, uh, data transparency. I think if this government uh, is serious uh, as it's shown so far to be on governance and on integrity, uh, I would urge it to firstly um, uh, go back to the National Anti-Corruption Plan, the NACP, uh, which is an excellent document. Uh, ensure that all those uh, initiatives in there are implemented. Um, perhaps they may want to revise the timelines right now, but uh, go back to it. Um, and NACP is a document where, whereby all the top processes have gone into it. It's now just a question of implementing them and uh, reporting 
monitoring them and reporting on the results of it. So I think that that will be a good step. With regards to healthcare and uh, in the bigger picture for any large scale government contracts or projects, uh, I would urge that uh, you know things like uh, uh, midterm audits be, can be conducted so that you don't wait for uh, 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 something to occur before you realize that the, the scale of the occurrence is, is, is causing leakages. So go in uh, at periodic times, do uh, uh, reviews of high value and high risk projects, identify potential red flags there and take immediate action. So then you show that you're, you're, you're being proactive in addressing the issue. And like I said, taking those actions and reporting them will go a long way towards addressing the trust deficit that exists currently yeah mm. and making sure that you know the people feel that their public funds are utilized in a in a fair and transparent manner i think i think those would be very good steps that can be taken SK? thank you Shari. thank you Shari. um i love what alan said we don't need new laws alan if i can just add this new line we don't need new laws in malaysia existing laws are enough we just need to enforce those existing laws in ways that are predictable and fast so that we're able to um, prevent, detect, and then respond to these uh, uh, issues of corruption. So I very much appreciate what Ellen has said, and thank you very much for that, Ellen. Um, shall we, here's my final thought. The thought is that um, corruption is an age-old problem of human behavior and human nature to look for advantages whenever we can find them. Obviously, there are very many problems with uh, um, corruption, uh, and uh, needless to say, we don't want to tell, we don't want to list down what the problems are with corruption. The point being that if we understand that this is human nature, then it makes it easier for us to operate a system, build and then operate a system that goes along the grain of human nature and not against the grain of human nature. Systems can work. If we build a good enough system, it should be able to detect maybe, let me invent a number, 95, 99% of corruption. That would be good enough to deter the vast majority of people to even think about corruption. Let me set all that aside to say that finally, auditors and monitors are our friends in corruption, in anti-corruption activities to be more specific. Meaning it is okay for us to accept auditors and monitors into our lives so that they can verify that the work that we've been doing is good. So perhaps to end with this term, that we can trust each other it is also important to verify. So trust, but verify. Thank you, Shawik. Over to you. Thank you very much. I've been speaking to Dr. Kor Sui King, co-founder of the Malaysian Health Coalition and Ellen Kirupakaran, exco member of Transparency International Malaysia. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.